I'd like uh, to invite you to turn once again in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. And the words we'll be looking at in particular are verses 12 through 25. So Mark 14, we'll be looking at verses 12 to 25. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And they were reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and say to him, one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. While they were eating, he took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you again know what each one of us face. Lord, you know our hearts. Lord, you know those who are like Mary, eager to pour out everything they have to give you honor. Lord, you know those of us who are like the disciples, presumptuous and maybe weak in faith and tempted to fall away from you, even to deny you. And Lord, you know those of us who are just like Judas. Hypocrites and pretenders ready to betray you when the opportunity arises. Lord, I pray specifically for such people that you would help them to see the state of their hearts. That they they would feel the admonition and warning that you give in this passage and be brought to repentance that they would not face the judgment that Judas faced, but they would 
taste the grace and forgiveness and all the blessings of salvation, inheritance of eternal life and adoption of sons. Lord, that even today would be the day of salvation. But Lord, speak to each one of us according to our need. And Spirit, let Your Word come in the power that we need it to impress upon our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The most notorious traitor in American military history, uh, most of you know, is Benedict Arnold. Uh, He was actually one of uh, General George Washington's best officers, uh, actually a, a war hero and a close friend. And so many people have wondered, well, what was it that would take somebody that was so close to Washington and such a a devoted um, warrior to the American cause and cause them to turn? It was actually rather simple. Um, Bitterness and greed. He was passed over for a promotion and five other officers received uh, generalships. They, they were chosen as generals um, even though they were, gen, they were junior officers to him. And that snub percolated in the dark recesses of his heart and when opportunity arri- arose to take vengeance upon that snub, he took advantage of it. What happened was he ended up marrying a um, young lady who was a, a British sympathizer, and uh, she probably worked as a spy somewhat too, and, and she convinced her husband to participate in um, treachery against George Washington, not only giving up plans for the taking of the fortress at West Point, but also for um, the, an attempt to capture Washington himself. And so when the British offered money and a command, he actually helped the British fight against America, he took advantage of the opportunity and turned his back on his country. Uh, Dante also, in his famous work, The Inferno, uh, pictures traitors as being in the lowest spot of hell. He has Brutus and Cassius, who were the the conspirators against Julius Caesar, and Judas uh, being eternally tormented in the jaws of Satan. For all eternity on account of their treachery. And the central focus of the passage before us is on the betrayal of Judas. It's actually another mark and sandwich. Uh, It begins with the preparation of the Passover and ends with the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Jesus basically uh, demonstrates that the Lord's Supper, it becomes the, um, the new Passover, so to speak, as it commemorates his death. The Passover looked forward to the death of Christ and the Lord's table commemorates his death until he comes again. And in between these two feasts that parallel one another, he gives this account and this announcement of the betrayal of Judas. These two meals parallel and bookend the announcement of Judas's betrayal. And the main point is actually emphasized in verse 21. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him. In other words, the Son of Man is going to die. It's all part of God's predetermined plan as was foreseen even in the Passover. 
But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And again, these, that verse really highlights the two doctrinal principles that we need to see in this passage. One, that everything that takes place is according to God's sovereign plan and design. None of this is an accident. Jesus knows what's going to happen. And in fact, he's planned it and prepared for it. He's not taken by surprise. However, this is not an excuse for the treachery of Judas. As you see in the warning, he pronounces a woe to Judas, but also to any who would profess to follow him and then turn their backs upon him. They, they will receive a severe judgment. That's the point. Let's look first at the preparation of the Passover. In verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And so this verse begins with presenting to us the timing of everything that takes place. The Passover lamb was sacrificed at sundown, probably around six o'clock in the evening. And that was probably that would have been on the Thursday. So the day before Good Friday. And the Passover, of course, was the religious festival that was used to commemorate God's passing over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. God said he would send his angel of death to pour out judgment. And the houses that had the blood of the lamb uh, placed upon them would be passed over. They would be covered. But the houses without such a covering the firstborn child of that house would perish in judgment. And so the Passover really was a a picture of man's ultimate need for salvation. And it pointed forward to the need for a ultimate Passover lamb. Because even as we know in the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats would not be enough to take away sins. We needed a perfect sacrifice. Which is why when Jesus began his ministry, John the Baptist announced his coming saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the ultimate Passover Lamb. It pointed to his death on behalf of sinners. Which just highlights the significance of this Last Supper as he ate the Passover with his disciples immediately before his death. And the emphasis in this paragraph, you'll see, is uh, in the repetition of the words Passover and prepare. Three times both words are mentioned. And, And the disciples ask Jesus where he wants them to go so that they can prepare the Passover for him. But the instructions he gives, however, demonstrates that He's the one that's actually prepared the Passover for them. The deeper truth being conveyed is that from eternity past, this has been the plan all along. This is not an accident. Jesus' betrayal and death. And it is time for Jesus to fulfill, finally, the purpose for which He came. And this account uh, parallels the account of uh, Jesus' triumphal entry in a number of ways. 
And maybe you thought of that as, as the passage is being read. Uh, Jesus sends two followers out to prepare and gives them kind of cryptic instructions. And as they go to prepare, uh, everything happens just as he said it would happen. And the point being is that Jesus, again, has prepared himself both for his triumphal entry, but also for Passover with the disciples. And we're not told if he had arranged plans beforehand. He might have. Or if he, in just his sovereign power, had arranged things and was working things in people's hearts for everything just to fall into place. I tend to think it's the latter, that this is a display of his sovereign power, because in the instructions he gives, he says, you'll find a man carrying a jar of water. Well, that would have been a hard thing for him to prearrange beforehand. Even if he had asked somebody for that person to know exactly when to bring the water and when his disciples would show up, just hard to arrange. Possible, I suppose. But I think what we're seeing here is, and what Mark's point is, is Jesus is not only prepared for everything that takes place, he's sovereignly guiding it. And he's the one that's preparing the Passover for the disciples. They think they're, pre- he's, they're preparing it for him, but he's preparing for them to eat. So Jesus not only arranged a location to eat the Passover, but it says the room is already furnished in a state of readiness. And, and even though the room was fully furnished, there were still some tasks that needed to be done for the preparation of the Passover meal, the food that needed to be prepared. This would include uh, the roasting of the Passover lamb. It would include uh, four glasses of wine that they would drink, um, provision of unleavened, uh, bitter herbs, um, other things that they would, that, that would that just utensils and stuff that would need to be laid out. But again, the point is, yes, God is direct, using the disciples to bring about the preparation. Again, the point is, is Jesus is behind even their preparation and his design this. And understanding the sovereign planning of Jesus behind these events sheds light on the next section, which emphasizes the betrayal of Judas. Look at the pronouncement of perdition. That word perdition uh, it actually comes from the Latin, uh, two words, meaning to give over, to hand over. And actually the Greek word betray that's used here, is, that's actually what that, it means, is to hand over uh, to destruction in particular. And the emphasis in the previous section we saw was in the repetition of the words prepare and Passover. In this section, it's on the words the twelve and betray. The whole point of this passage is, is the one who betrays Jesus is not some stranger. It's one of his most intimate companions. One who eats meals with him, shares his bread with him. He's not some one of the scribes and Pharisees who would already were at enmity with him. It wasn't some barbarian in a far off land. It wasn't some mercenary that was paid off. It was one of the twelve who had followed him, who had slept beside him, who had eaten with him, that betrays him. One of his chosen followers. And the fact that his betrayer is such an intimate companion 
is what makes the act all the more heinous. His relationship with Jesus increases the weight of his guilt. And that's why Jesus gives such a terrifying pronouncement of judgment in verse 21. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Again, the, the word that's used here for betray, it's, it's the Greek word paradidomi, which means the hand over. It's, a, it's used to describe the handing over a guilty person to authorities for their destruction, for their execution. And so what, what's going on here is Judas is seeking to betray, to hand Jesus over to his enemies for destruction. But in reality, what's taking place is Jesus is handing Judas over to his sin for his destruction. That's why he says, woe. And this is why Paul describes apostates as being handed over to Satan. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, he tells Timothy, to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they might not that learn not to blaspheme. And I think at this point it would be it's important for us to zoom out and ask the question: Why is it that Mark has put this passage here. What is it that Mark wants us to learn? What's the purpose of this text? Is it, is it just to instill shock like the disciples experienced? That they were grieved when they heard this. That Jesus would be betrayed by an intimate companion. Is it to warn us as believers that there will be people that we think are followers of Christ who in the end show that they weren't and fall away? Is it to provoke shock? Well, I think it does all these things. It teaches all these things. But I think the primary emphasis is to warn us. To warn professing believers of the horror of falling away from Christ. Again, the main verse is verse 21. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Why woe? That's an interesting word in in the Bible. If you were to see all the times that word is used, it's used as a warning of severe judgment. And And it speaks to the reality that there is a gradation in the judgment of God. The worst punishment for unbelievers is not reserved for the worst criminals, but those who, knowing the truth, still choose to reject it. Unbelievers will be judged according to what they have knowingly rejected. And this is why in Matthew 23, when Jesus pronounces the seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees, woe unto them because they are the religious leaders. They are experts in the law. They should know, if anybody should know who the Christ is, if anybody should know what repentance and faith look like, it should be them. But their judgment will be according to 
their knowledge that they did not take heed of. And they used God to attain worldly ends. They should have known better. Remember also when Jesus pronounced woes upon some select cities. Matthew eleven, twenty-one to 24. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. In Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. In Jesus' parable of servants, he makes this clear when he says, And the servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready, or act according to his will, will receive a severe judgment. But the one who did not know, and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. But from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I think it's easy. You hear this all the time. And this is where we just, we, we need to have our theology just corrected a little bit. It's, it's often heard that, or assumed maybe I should say, that the, 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 the worst place in hell will belong to people like Hitler, or Idi Amin, or Pol Pot, or child molesters, or rapists. That is not what the Bible teaches. They deserve a severe judgment. But what's worse is to know the truth, to know the means of salvation, and to turn your back on God. That is what Jesus' point here when he warns Judas, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. The worst sin any person can ever commit is to know the gospel and to continue to reject the gospel and choose the, to follow the God of this world and reject Christ. Joshua Harris is in one of the scariest positions any man could ever be in right now. You need to pray for his soul. And parents of unbelieving children, brothers and sisters of unbelieving brothers and sisters who have grown up in church, you need to be far more concerned about them than anything else. That needs to be the height of your prayer. Not what's going on in the nation. Not what's going on in politics or even in the death and destruction of the world. You should be foremost concerned about those who should know the truth and who continue to reject it. Not because of what I'm saying, but because of what Jesus is saying. 
hell is real. And the severity of judgment will be according to knowledge, not according to the heinousness of a sin. At least in our eyes. And this is why the author of Hebrews sternly warns churchgoers if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? I think when the author of Hebrews said this, he wasn't, don't envision a man yelling and pounding the pulpit and screaming, but think of tears pouring down his face, pleading. We know of him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See again, the worst part about Judas's betrayal is that he was one of the twelve. He knew what he's rejecting. He willfully chose 30 pieces of silver and gave up, rejected the greatest treasure that has ever been offered to man. Let's look now at the partaking of the Passover. The emphasis in the previous section was on the twelve and on betrayal. And here it's on Jesus is giving and the disciples receiving. The point is that Jesus gives up his life. He gives, he says, he took some bread and broke it and gave it to them, saying, take it. He gives up his life so that we can receive eternal life. Remember what it said in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came to be not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. He came to give so that we could receive. And Jesus said in John ten eighteen, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I'm choosing to do this. So he's giving up his life, his betrayal, his crucifixion, his trial that was just a joke of a trial, all that was according to God's sovereign plan. It wasn't accidental. Those things were not incidental either. The planned purpose for why Jesus came. In John, before the Last Supper, Jesus is recorded praying to the Father. And He says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is my purpose. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look again in, in verse 24. 
He calls the cup the blood of the covenant. So as he institutes the Lord's table, he specifically uses the word covenant. He's making a solemn covenant with them. He is giving up his blood. He's giving up his body. And in return, they will receive forgiveness for their sins. So when they take the bread and they take the cup, they are embracing that covenant. They are they are professing their allegiance to Christ in covenant. So just like when a, a couple exchanges rings at the wedding altar, the, the rings are signs that they are embracing the covenant of marriage. And there's no special power in rings. Neither is there any special power in the bread or the cup. The power is in the blood of Christ. It's in the death of Christ. Right? The power is in the blood we sing. And the reason we take these elements is not because we believe in eating the bread and drinking the cup that we're giving some sort of spiritual energy or it actually somehow mystically it helps us to become better Christians. They, they're like wearing a wedding ring. When we take the bread and the cup, we are affirming our devotion, our commitment to the covenant. It's a profession of loyalty and devotion to Christ. So when a per- likewise, when a person um, pledges allegiance to the flag, puts their hands over their heart, I pledge allegiance to the United States. Or, or just the opposite, when a person burns the flag of the United States. Nothing mystical is happening. But that doesn't mean those actions are insignificant. They're full of meaning. In fact, it's because of the meaning that people get so inflamed over such actions of pledging allegiance or the burning of a flag. They're actions of declaration of one's loyalty. And likewise, when we take the bread and the cup in communion, we are declaring our absolute allegiance to Christ, our commitment to the covenant. A commitment to obey Him at all costs. And this is why Paul gives the warning that he gives in 1 Corinthians 11. You know it well. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. The unworthy manner, that is, professing to be loyal, showing that you're committed to the covenant while in your heart you know you're not because you're harboring unrepentant sin. That's what it means to drink the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. And that's why he says many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So just think of this. Sexual sin, when committed by a single person, is a heinous sin. It's awful. Fornication is greatly sinful. But adultery is far more heinous. Because you're mocking the covenant. It's a desecration of a covenant. And to profess allegiance to Christ, while in your heart you are harboring unrepentant sin, is to mock the Lord's table. It's to mock Christ. It's to play the part of Benedict Arnold, or Brutus and Cassius, or Judas. Look at verse 25. 
where he says, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And Jesus' point in this last verse is that he's going to die. The covenant isn't just a promise. It's not a vow. It's a vow that is sealed in blood. I am doing my... In fact, I'm the one making this covenant. And I'm doing so in my blood. And so to dishonor that is horrific. That's why what Judas does is so awful. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.26, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's a proclamation of death. Jesus died to, to give us all the benefits of the new covenant. And when we participate in the Lord's table, we are proclaiming the fact that He died for us. And we will continue to proclaim the fact that He died for us, that we could have forgiveness. That our reconciliation is based upon His death. The death of the only Son of God. And we will commemorate that until He returns again and establishes His kingdom upon the earth. And it's not until that time that Jesus will drink of the fruit of the vine again. Whether that's wine or grape juice. Maybe it'll be grape juice to to keep from offending Baptists. We'll see. But the point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians... And the point Mark is making is that to proclaim that God the Son died for your sins while harboring unrepentant sin in your life is to mock the Son of God. It's to desecrate the covenant. It's like standing at the altar and with your tongue professing solemn vows to your bride. Well, in your mind, in your heart, you're secretly lusting after one of the bridesmaids. It's to play the part of Judas. Jesus came to the earth with the express purpose of dying in our place. He came to be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And so the question that remains is, will you receive Him? Will you let go of the empty promises of sin? Will you let go of those things, whatever that thing may be, in order to receive Christ. Judas refused to let go of his sin. And instead he chose to reject the greatest treasure that has ever been offered to mankind. For 30 pieces of silver, he rejected all the benefits of salvation. Adoption of sons. Inheritors of eternal life. Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, the, the opportunity to receive a resurrected body that will never die, unity with the Trinity that has always existed. He rejected all of that for 30 pieces of silver. But what's worse than that 
in my opinion, is that there are people today, maybe even here, who are held back by far lesser things. Who know maybe even more than Judas knew because of what they've heard from the Bible, what they've read, what they've grown up hearing. And they would still cling, they would still resist submitting to Christ and embracing Him as their Savior because they don't want to offend their friends. Because they don't like what the Bible says about homosexuality. Because they don't like what the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Because they're afraid of losing relationships or they're afraid to admit that they were wrong. They're afraid to admit that they, they've actually been faking it the rest of the, their whole life. They're just unwilling to give up whatever sin they think is going to satisfy them. I mean, just ask yourself, if that's you, what is it that's keeping you right now from full-hearted devotion to Jesus Christ? What is it? I mean, the Lord knows. I would assume you know. I mean, do you really want to align yourself with Judas? Because that's what you're doing. I mean, even though you know Jesus died for you, you would still choose the world than Him? The world that has never paid out on any of its promises? You would still choose the world? I think that and when you choose Christ, there's so much... Freedom in this decision. I mean, I found this passage oddly comforting. Because when you, when you submit to Christ, your loyalty is to Him. He alone is the one you need to give an account towards. And you know you'll be forgiven because of His blood. But right now, there is massive polarization in our country. Compelling you to pick one side or another. Either you are for racism or you're a patriot. You're either for the police officers or you're for slavery. I mean, that's how, it, that's how the narrative is getting projected. And the Christian has freedom from such lunacy. Because our allegiance is to Christ. In aligning ourselves to Christ, we're just aligning ourselves to where He stands. And so, people can make any sort of accusation of us. And all we need to say is, I'm with Him. Whatever Jesus says, I'm with Him. And I'll, I'll take whatever hatred you have to lavish on me, because my alignment is with Christ. And I don't care what you think, I just care about Him. And He's the sovereign God of the universe. He's the one that determines right from wrong. The Christian is given freedom from all this chaos and lunacy. But, no, but not the person of the world. They have to placate one side or another, not knowing that, that that's just going to be temporary. The world will use you as long as it can, and then it will 
chew you up and spit you out and leave you on the side of the road weeping and alone. That's just how it works, but not the Christian. The Christian has perfect peace in Christ. Jesus said, Behold, now is the day of salvation. He didn't say next week. He didn't say tomorrow. He said, Now is the day of salvation. And you don't know if, like Judas, today may be your last day. Judas thought he would have a chance to repent. He tried to. He went back to the chief priests, threw the money at them, and they didn't want anything of it. It was too late. He went and hung himself. I think Jesus is, this right here, right now, was Jesus' warning. Judas, this is your last chance. Woe to the one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And, and if you are not a follower of Christ, a clear, committed follower of Christ, the same thing to you. Woe. You don't know if before the day is up, you will have to stand before Christ in judgment. And have to admit that knowing all that you knew, all that the Bible said, all that was evident in the lives of genuine believers, and you still chose to reject the gospel because you wanted this world or whatever it was. So enough sitting on the fence. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Either the God of this world and all His empty promises or the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would open blind eyes, soften hard hearts, that we might all submit ourselves to You and follow You. And Lord, for us who are believers, I pray that You would sober us for the reality of those whom we know who are close but not following. Or for those who we do know that have clearly rejected You. Lord, give us hearts of compassion, hearts of genuine love and zeal. Lord, that we might love even as You have loved. Lord, help us to take Your Word all the more seriously in light of what You proclaim in this passage. We ask for Your grace in Christ's name. Amen.